The Federal Research Division, an office within the Library of Congress, is celebrating its 75th year in operation. During that time, it's provided much-needed, nonpartisan, custom-tailored research to federal agencies and others involved in governmental operations. To learn more about the FRC and its history, I spoke to the chief of the division, Annie Roram. It is a little-known part of the library, although uh, we'd love to be known across the federal government. So the Federal Research Division, or FRD, is a unit within the Library of Congress that produces highly world-renowned and nonpartisan research and analysis to support evidence-based decision-making among a select group of clients. So specifically, FRD provides custom research to federal agencies, the District of Columbia government, and authorized federal contractors. And it's Crucial to to mention that FRD operates on a cost recovery basis and takes almost no appropriated funds to sustain its operations. So our clients pay us to conduct research on their behalf. And we were originally known as the Air Research Unit. That was way back in 1948. And we were established to provide research support for what was then a new U.S. Air Force. We later became known as the Air Studies Division and later the Defense Research Division, uh, but assumed our current name, the Federal Research Division, in 1970. And that was when our mandate was expanded to include all of the federal government outside of Congress. So we sometimes call ourselves the Congressional Research Service, but for everybody else instead because we don't provide research for Congress and do provide it for all other parts of the federal government. And so can you lay out a little bit for me? I know you said federal agencies, but uh, it's my understanding that you also provide services to other entities. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how those arrangements are conducted? Yes. So any organization that's within the District of Columbia or is, quote, an authorized federal contractor Any of those groups that receive appropriations, either on a one-hop, so either direct appropriations, or on a two-hop, so uh, are contracted to provide some type of service on behalf of an appropriated entity, can work with us through an interagency agreement to send those funds back to us at the library to provide research services for them. So it's all part of the same financial structure. It's an interagency agreement. And it's a little bit less common for us to do work for those types of groups. Our, the vast majority of our business is for the federal government. And that includes components within the Library of Congress as well. And what And I know that it's probably all over the place, but when you say research, uh, can you just give me a few examples of uh, the types of research that you all are doing for said federal agencies when they uh, request your help? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It is all over the place. We're a group of generalists, and we love when folks come to us with thorny questions or unusual requests we can produce a lot of different types of things for federal agencies or our other clients. So when you hear research, you might think desk research or a written product. And it's true that we do a lot of that. A lot of literature reviews, a lot of organizational histories, a lot of things that require us to use the library's vast and amazing collection of resources 
to read and analyze and synthesize and write. But we also do other really interesting things like data visualization and data analysis. So we recently put together an interactive map on behalf of a, a library component. And that map allows people to click around and look at the array of federal libraries across the United States and learn a little bit more about each of those libraries. We also conduct data analysis on behalf of the Department of Defense, where we go into USA spending data and do an analysis of contracts that go out to counties all across the country to determine which counties are receiving how much in Defense Department contracts. So we've got a lot of skilled folks on staff ranging from economists to librarians to evaluators to data scientists. And we can do research of all stripes across the board. I'll mention one more thing, which is that we're building our capacity to do operations and business research. So some folks will come to us and say, we're really interested in learning a little bit more about, for instance, how federal agencies that look like us make sure that they're executing their budget efficiently year over year. What types of tools are they using? What types of models do they have in place? And we will go out benchmark those federal agencies, conduct interviews, uh, learn about the tools in place, and help agencies or library subcomponents learn about those business operations. So it's it's absolutely research and analysis, but it is a specific type in the form of operations research. We're speaking with Annie Roram, Chief of the Federal Research Division within the Library of Congress. And I know you talked about the there was a little bit of a name change from the early days, but 75 years of the Federal Research Division, has the role stayed the same or has there been an evolution, not just within the different kinds of research you all are doing? Has it mostly been the role that you all are filling now in helping federal agencies? Yes, I would say there are two major evolutions, but there's been a through line of research and analysis support. So the two major evolutions are, as you've alluded to, an expansion in our client base. So we were established to provide that research support for the U.S. Air Force. We later worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Then we provided services to the entire Department of Defense and then the mandate expanded again to include all of the federal government. And as I mentioned, we also support the District of Columbia and authorized federal contractors. But the other thing that has changed over time is what people are looking for. And that changes uh, year over year, really, Eric. I mean, we've got people now coming to us with questions about evaluation because of the Evidence Act. So there's a large push across the federal government now to really look at the data in terms of um, how policies and programs are performing in order to ensure that they're performing as planned, efficiently, and effectively. So while at a you know time 50 years ago, we were mostly doing, like I said, desk research, we have really expanded our offerings to do a lot more on the data front. I should also mention, of course, that in 1948, there was no internet. <laughs> so the ways that we're conducting research and the types of products we can offer um, in this internet age are really quite different than they were in 1948. 
Makes sense. And you touched on it a little bit beforehand of who makes up the team at the Federal Research Division. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about the background of the kind of people who work here and a little bit about your road to getting to lead the division itself. Oh, I'd be happy to talk about my very talented team. Um, They are truly a, a really fantastic group of generalists, as I mentioned. We have folks on staff who are librarians. They do have a master's in library science, but the majority of our staff have degrees outside of library science. So we have folks with PhDs in education or history. Uh, We have lots of folks with master's degrees in public policy. We have folks who speak all different kinds of languages. And I would say uh, the most important commonality across my really talented team is Um, an interest in anything. People that succeed at the Federal Research Division are those who are curious and get excited by the idea of diving into research and making the product useful for our client. So we appreciate people who can tackle a steep learning curve by just charging up that hill and people who really care about getting clients what they want. As for me, I've been the chief of the division formally since November of 2021. I joined the division in the height of that first pandemic summer, July of 2020, as a project manager. I shortly thereafter became a section head and then acting chief and chief in in 2021. Uh, Prior to joining the division, I was actually a client of the divisions. And that's how I found out about FRD. When I worked for the National Women's Business Council back in 2017, part of my job in that role, which is, I should mention, the National Women's Business Council is part of the Small Business Administration. Part of my job in that role was to find folks uh, to conduct research on women's business ownership. And I learned about the Federal Research Division and signed an interagency agreement with FRD back in 2017. When I left the the council, I became the deputy director of research at a federal commission, the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service, uh, which was a really fantastic job, but one that had an expiration date. So I knew that by summer of 2020, that commission would be sunsetting. So I thought back fondly to the work that the Federal Research Division had conducted for me back in 2017. And I reached out to some folks here and asked if maybe they would be interested in having me join the team. And they were, and I did. So I can really speak to the client experience here at the Federal Research Division, um, as well as, of course, the researcher and management role. All right. And here's to 75 more years, right? (laughs) Indeed. And that's our goal here is to make sure that people know about us so that we can stay in business, stay providing those high quality services to the federal government for 75, 175 more years. And I should mention, Eric, we are hosting an event coming up on Tuesday, June 13th. I will be moderating a panel of five research users and researchers in different roles across the federal government, really talented, exciting folks. And we'll be having an hour-long conversation uh, about why it's really important to have good 
quality research to inform federal policy. So anyone who's interested in joining us virtually can find the link to RSVP to that 1030 June 13th event on our website, which is loc.gov slash FRD. Annie Roram is chief of the Federal Research Division. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but 
How would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years. 
because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.